I need to think out loud about something that I've been thinking about for some time today. And so let's sit back, relax, and flush out some ideas. Good morning, everybody, and happy Friday to you. My name is Connor Collins, and welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode 148. Today, I need your help. I need to think out loud about something that I've been considering for a really long time. And I just need to flush out some of these ideas and maybe even get feedback from you to help me better formulate some ideas for moving forward. And the difficult thing about what we're going to talk about today, I think in general, not only as it relates to concussion, but even just what we do, is that this topic is just a difficult topic to try and understand. And today's topic is iatrogenic factors in concussion. And iatrogenic might be a word that is not that familiar to you. Iatrogenic means relating to illness caused by medical examination, treatment or intervention. And so when we talk about iatrogenic factors in the world of medicine, we're talking about illnesses that are created by the medical system. So this might be, say, a side effect from a medication or a medical procedure that has a side effect. So a simple example of this might be you take a medication for something, say high blood pressure arbitrarily, and you get another symptom or you get another condition that you now have to manage. Another example of an iatrogenic intervention that might cause a medical condition might be uh, radiation for cancer treatment causing a peripheral neuropathy or nerve damage. But what I want to talk about today, and I will talk about some of those medical, true medical iatrogenic factors in the concussion space, but then we have all of these other soft skills, things like language and context that we have within our practice that can create iatrogenic side effects that may be detrimental to the people that we see in terms of how they properly recover from something or or have the potential to fully recover. And language and context are really important soft skills that we often take for granted. And so one quick, simple example of an iatrogenic side effect might be the example of a knee x-ray. So let's take an example. We have a person, they have a x-ray, and on that x-ray it says there's a little bit of osteoarthritis in the knee. And that person's come to us because their knees are sore. There are a couple of different ways as practitioners that we can respond to that. The first way that we might respond is saying something like, 
okay, this is something that we can work with. Um, osteoarthritis is like wrinkling on the inside of the body. Um, there isn't any bone-on-bone -bone osteoarthritis here. It looks like it's what we consider to be kind of within normal limits of your age. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to start an active recovery program here, keep you running but modify it, or get you swimming instead. We're going to keep all those activities of daily living that you really love, add in some exercise, and then continue to reevaluate it along the way in the hopes that we can get you back to your pre-injury status. And so that would be taking kind of a positive approach, an active care positive approach, in hopes that the side effects that we create through our language and context are positive, not necessarily sending the person in the opposite direction. And so if we take that same example and we receive that x-ray report and we kind of grimace when we grab it or we go, oh, that looks, you know, this is the worst I've ever seen or this looks really, really bad. Um, what I'm going to need you to do is stop running. You're probably never going to be able to run again. We need to get you back to your doctor for some medication and some, you're probably going to end up having surgery on this. The picture that we paint there is two very different pictures for the people that we see. One can very much negatively influence the outcome. And this isn't to suggest that the person fully recovers every time, but it is the framework by which we build treatment plans, disseminate information that we found in our assessment, and work with the people that we see in a shared decision-making process that allow us the best potential outcomes possible and using language that's non-threatening, as well as using assessment tools and our assessment processes in a way that we can get best results. And this is what I've been thinking about for a really, really long time as it pertains to the concussion space. And when I try to read up on this, there's just not very much information um, that I've found to be just overly useful in, in providing, you know, there hasn't really been a lot of research. There's some, you know, discussion papers I've read. Much of them are quite old. So I thought that during this episode, I'm just going to flush out some thoughts on this. I do try to provide evidence in episodes whenever possible, but there's just not a lot that I can really provide here. So this is more of me taking everything that's in my brain and dumping it into a podcast episode in hopes that it helps me and, and ultimately helps you, the listener. The first thing that we have to recognize is that people that have suffered from concussions, you know, they're not immune to iatrogenic side effects. It's not like a concussion is really any different than any other injury or ailment. Any potential medication that the person's on, medical procedure that they go through, as well as some of these soft skills can influence their recovery in a negative way. When we look at concussion, medication and education are the primary methods used to manage the sequelae of symptoms that are often felt following a, a head injury. And so I think first we should recognize that there are actually a couple of iatrogenic side effects that are pretty well known in the concussion space that are worth mentioning. And the first is related to medication, particularly over-the-counter medication when trying to manage post-concussion headache. This is often done when the person is trying to sort of self-manage 
through over-the-counter medications, things like Aleve, Tylenol, Advil, etc. And one of the common side effects is what's called an overuse or a medication overuse headache, especially in individuals that have had symptoms persisting for three months or more that are taking over-the-counter medication or even prescription-based medication that may have been initially prescribed to them for greater than 15 days out of the month, but can continue to struggle with a bilateral or two-sided pressing pulsing headache with a little bit of nausea, they can in fact be getting sort of low-grade continual headaches from overtaking medication. And often through the recognition of just the things that I described, simple questioning about how often the person's taking medication to manage the headache, how, how long the headache's been present, we might be able to recognize this and then refer them back to their family doctor for interventions in weaning off medication. So anytime that we're helping somebody in our clinical practices with concussion-based symptoms, a full list of medication, particularly new medications that have been started since the onset of symptoms to maybe even manage symptoms should be run through and understood. And if there is something that is a known side effect, then making that meaningful referral back to the family doctor to help get some, some assistance with those symptoms would be really, really valuable. The first thing that we, we need to recognize is that we can't always assume that all medical interventions are going to have a positive outcome or a positive outcome based on even if the intent is positive and that there may be medication side effects and or side effects to other interventions that they may have got along the way. So these are really when we're talking about kind of hard medical side effects where the most, most of the side effects in the concussion space lie in the medication. Now there are also these series of soft skills that can lead to or influence recovery. And I think the first thing is is oversight. And oversight may be done in through a lack of a thorough exam or a lack of any exam at all where one of two things might happen. There may be an oversight in concussion diagnosis there may be oversight in something more significant than a concussion that's overlooked, or there may be a concussion diagnosis when one is not actually present. This is simply due to maybe the lack of recognition by the medical provider that's seeing the person in their clinic during the initial assessment. And also the recognition that not all symptoms of concussion mean that someone has a concussion. So really being able to provide a, a thorough intake history and using scaled assessment tools may prevent oversight and quick diagnosis. Paired with this is the difficulty of in fact diagnosing a concussion in that not all symptoms that are felt after hitting the head or getting a whiplash injury mean that you have a concussion. For example, if you get a whiplash injury in a car accident and you have a headache, and a headache in isolation with some neck stiffness, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've had a concussion. It's also common to get eye strain after whiplash. Um, in instances where you get blunt force trauma to the face or head and there's some swelling, it can often create facial pain and headache. 
so there is this really fine balance of oversight versus difficulty in diagnosis. And this is probably the most difficult place to sit in the concussion space, as you always generally want to err on the side of caution. But there are often circumstances where it's just really hard to say what's going on here. So the person might have gotten hit in the head. They might have a headache and some eye strain. And the reality of it is, is you really don't know. The diagnosing physician just really doesn't know whether it's truly a concussion or not. And so while you might want to err on the side of caution, but that physician is maybe hesitant to give a formal diagnosis, it creates this gray area where often the person that is experiencing the symptoms can get really, really apprehensive because they don't necessarily have answers. And we as humans really, really want you know concrete answers to most things. Now, this has, I think, been brought about due to just the general increase in concussion, education, recognition, and awareness globally and within things like the schooling system, the workplace. And I will very much clarify my position here that I, I want to say that this is definitely a net positive by far. I think that you know, the general conversation around concussion recognition, recognizing early signs and symptoms, particularly in, in kids in the pediatric population, has led to really positive things. Some of the questions that I ask myself is, has this increased recognition and awareness led to an overdiagnosis? And again, I don't have the answers for this. Has it led to an overdiagnosis? Has it led to an increase in self-diagnosis by individuals without seeking medical attention? Has it led to more fear around concussions or when people get hit in the head on their own? And I think that probably the answer is everything that I've just said, the answer is probably yes. There is a net positive. There probably has been an over diagnosis of concussions based on increased recognition and awareness. There probably has been an increase in self-diagnosis. People are going to, in certain circumstances, get more scared. But there are always ways to try and mitigate these increased statistics through trying to be mindful as a practitioner of iatrogenic side effects. And we'll discuss some of these in a moment. Now, from a a research and statistics standpoint, very difficult to say that, yes, there has been truly an an increase in overdiagnosis or truly an increase in in self-diagnosis, mainly because not all of these cases are going to be reported. There are going to be people that hit their head, go online, get a, a list of symptoms, make a decision based on those symptoms that, yes, they do have a concussion and maybe carry about some self-management through the internet and then eventually return themselves to work or school or play and not have really told anybody or gone through the formal medical system. When we look at overall total statistics, just a really difficult place to play in and, and truly assess. Now, if we look at a little bit further into some of these assessment tools that are used in the concussion space, the difficulty furthermore with concussion is A lot of assessing in the concussion space is done based on subjective reporting. 
if someone's coming to me and they've received a formal diagnosis and I'm looking to you know, help manage some of the concussion-like symptoms that they're experiencing, let's say a headache, a lot of this is based on the subjective reporting of the individual as to how intense their headache is, where is it located, you know, what things aggravate it, what things relieve it, are they on medication, do they have a headache history, etc. Accompanying these physical exams, there are red flag rule-out exams that might at times show more reproducible, predictable presentations. So for example, if I'm assessing the cranial nerves and I see that one eye is moving in a way that is a little bit concerning to me, I can objectively recognize that and then make a referral accordingly. But much of the process after that fact is about symptom provocation. And I think that how we conduct our physical exams as therapists certainly affect our findings. So for example, are we, are we leading with leading questions? For example, am I doing something that, you know, might in certain cases create eye strain and then I'm projecting that onto the person that I'm examining? Is this giving you eye strain rather than what are you feeling here or are you feeling any symptoms here? And then allowing the person to tell me whether they feel nothing or if they feel a symptom, how and what are the descriptive words that they use to explain that. I can suggest things even further and say, you know, if this exam is positive, you will feel eye strain. And that may influence the individual to feel eye strain when they otherwise wouldn't have because they're going in with the expectation that that is what they will feel based on this exam and they've hit their head and they're feeling overwhelmed and they're in my clinical practice and now I'm getting them to do things that don't make them feel good rather than asking someone to do something very generically and then getting an explanation of findings from the individual. So I'm going to get you to look at this dot. Okay, did you feel anything there or does that feel okay to you or feel quote-unquote normal to you? Now there are also certain metrics that are used in the concussion space to try and lend objectivity to a highly subjective presentation. So in the neuropsychiatry world, there are things like neuropsych exams or neuropsychiatric exams that are you know, largely based in questionnaires, computer-based testing. There's also computer-based baseline testing. One thing that I've, I've struggled with, particularly in the neuropsychiatric world, is I've never had a neuropsychiatric exam in all my years in practice where a person has gotten one and the exams come back with, there are no findings. There's always been findings on neuropsychiatric exams in every person that I know in my personal practice that has gone through one. And so I'm not saying that neuropsychiatric exams are not useful because they 100% are useful. But one of the things that I continue to struggle with is the ambiguity of findings and symptoms that are present on the exam in the concussion space. Further to that, there's the ambiguity of pre-existing symptoms or paralleling symptoms in individuals that are suffering from concussion-like symptoms. So for example, if the person has a migraine history and now they have an increase in migraine headaches, but I know that their return to zero is still going to be them getting headaches because they've always gotten headaches, 
then that is a really difficult thing to assess and discuss and often have the person provide explanation to me regarding. Or if there are paralleling symptoms, kind of going back to the adage of just because you've been hit in the head, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a concussion. If somebody is experiencing eye strain and headaches because of what is thought to be a recent slip and fall injury, but they're also or have been going through or have just started menopause where some of those symptoms parallel, then it's really difficult to say, okay, what type of symptoms are we managing here? And then how do we get, you know, enough people involved that we can concretely say that we are doing everything we can to help this person in a, a really positive way. And I think that the more persistent the symptoms are, meaning the longer that symptoms have been experienced post-injury, the more difficult this is. Because the more time or the further that someone's been removed from the initial injury, typically the more complexity there are, not necessarily in the degree of the symptoms, but the more complexity it becomes or more complex story it becomes in the management of those symptoms. Time complicates most things. This is further complicated by if the person already has a history of a number of head injuries, or it's further complicated by the complexity of an individual's health profile. So let's say someone is on a number of medications, they're struggling with their health profile in other ways, they have some other concurrent diseases, maybe high blood pressure, metabolic disease, and then they've also hit their head three or four months ago, a lot of this gets melded together and it's really, really difficult as the practitioner to say, yes, this is caused by this or this is caused by that and you really don't know. And I think that if there are people that are definitively saying this, I would struggle to understand how they've arrived at those definitive conclusions in a really, really gray area. I think for this reason, in the persistent presentation, it's always really valuable to have someone in the therapy space helping the person along the way through either some type of cognitive behavioral therapy or their associated adjunct therapies to really help the person try to get an understanding of the symptoms that they're going through and providing them useful tools for during the day to help mitigate and manage and accept some of those symptoms and then how to move forward with a a life that is productive and meaningful to them under those circumstances. And this brings about ultimately the question that I am attempting to, to answer myself when I think about this topic, which is how as practitioners do we curve this? How do we avoid catastrophe in presentation or how do we avoid catastrophe in helping the people in our practices that are coming in with concussion-like symptoms following a concussion either acutely or in a more persistent phase three months or more. I've got a few thoughts as to how I can or I think I can help manage these individuals and I'd love to know if you have any additional thoughts that you want to add. So I think firstly, I think it's important to recognize that you can still err on the side of caution and not catastrophize things. 
So I think those two things, you know, erring on the side of caution and catastrophe are not mutually exclusive. You can be okay with saying, look, we're not really sure here, but we have a young person. We want to make sure they're back to school appropriately before returning to sport. So these are the steps that we're going to be taking to go along that path rather than using some of that language that might push parents, kids, partners, as well as the individual that has the the injury into a space that might not be helpful for the recovery. I think that adopting a matter-of-fact, active, patient-centered program where they are involved helps with iatrogenic side effects. Also providing a thorough exam, often with a number of different practitioners, for one person so you can get a number of different opinions and collectively come at it as a group of individuals trying to help someone rather than often as as a single practitioner we can often pigeonhole ourselves based on the fact that we're the sole provider looking at them using our own assessment strategies which are full of imperfections that we may not recognize at the time thoroughly answering a person's questions and dispelling some of the myths around concussion, concussion recovery, things like, you know, you have to go and lie on the couch for three weeks, or you have to sit in a dark room for the next two weeks, or you have to wear sunglasses 24 hours of the day. These things that are unfortunately still being discussed as reasonable treatment interventions to address symptoms, but have been very much removed or should be removed based on the current literature and what that literature says about concussion recovery would definitely be doing people a favor. I often address that by just saying, you know, what are some of the things that you've heard about managing concussion like symptoms? Do you have any questions? So, and then I'll usually give the exam, those three examples, things like sunglasses, sitting on the couch for a few weeks or sitting in a dark room. And then the person, if they've heard of those things can say, yeah, I, you know, my friend told me that and I was going to ask you about it or I have been doing that. Um, is that helpful? And then you can try to dispel some of those myths and shift the person maybe away from catastrophe into something that is a little bit more comforting for, for them. I think it's also helpful to to discuss the the path of recovery with individuals and in that like any injury, we hope that it goes as well as possible, and we hope that it goes in the smooth, linear trajectory. However, like most things, there will be kind of undulations and highs and lows, and just because another symptom uh, becomes present again, it doesn't mean that you've taken a step back. So if the person's got you know, a headache that's returned at day seven or eight when they return to work. It's merely a, a symptom that we need to manage. It doesn't necessarily mean they're taking a step backwards. Similarly, if knee pain re-aggravates itself, um, it doesn't mean that the person's re-injured their knee. It just means that the knee is sore and you know that might be a measure of a little bit too much too soon and being able to pivot when things either aren't working or injury recovery is telling you something about the process. So making things very dynamic and not static, 
and providing modification, not elimination, is valuable. If I can get people to continue doing the things that they love to do and or modify or replace with one thing that's equally as enjoyable, then I want to be able to do that wherever possible. I don't want to eliminate unless I have to eliminate. And there may be time periods where elimination may be valuable depending upon what the person is going through. And if I can shorten that span of elimination as much as possible, then that is ultimately what is preferred. And so being able to to look at it through all lenses, get as many people involved, and taking that active, matter-of-fact, patient-centered recovery process that's dynamic and flexible and dispelling some of the myths that may be out there that are pushing people towards a position where they feel less hope and they get apprehensive about where they are at. And in those circumstances, using that referral of counseling to help them really get into something that allows them the tools to be able to manage that appropriately as those feelings come up throughout the days has been really, really valuable to some of the people that I've seen. Now, in rounding this thought process out, we should also recognize that there are times where people won't get better. And this is true for for everything. Um, People will get persistent symptoms. In saying that, the vast majority of people will get better and return to their pre-injury status. But there are times where things will be more serious. And I still think that leaning on everything that we talked about up until this point can still be valuable in leading to best outcome. Best outcome in those scenarios might not be complete resolution of symptoms. Maybe it's 90% resolved, but 90% is still better than 50%. And trying to, again, return to as close to pre-injury status as possible. And if there are circumstances where the person is unable to recover fully, really getting them the, the resources that are needed to allow them to accept that and understand what and how they can move forward in a meaningful way, as hard as that may be, I think is is of utmost importance. And that is certainly not a, a wheelhouse that is a specialty of mine, but I have people within my referral network to help those people that are in those circumstances. But I think ultimately... If we are merely taking the position of understanding that as practitioners in the medical field, we can do things that influence recovery and that there are things from both a medical standpoint, procedural and medication-wise, that cause side effects that can certainly parallel or mimic symptoms post-concussion, as well as there are things that we can do through leading questions, framing the symptoms that the individual is going through and taking an active patient-centered approach to recovery, if we are mindful of those things, I think we stand a better chance in serving the people that we see in a more positive way. Now, does this mean that we're, again, going to help everyone? No. But I think where my comfort lies is that I have that recognition and it is something that I'm continually thinking about in the education that I provide to therapists, the education that I provide to the people that I see, how 
the language that I use, my influence, how people are recovering, as well as the resources and the team that's helping to manage people. How is the team as a whole addressing an individual's needs in the context of clinical settings and recovery? What I would love to know from the listeners this week is if you're a practitioner, what are some things, because a lot of this parallels not only concussion, but persistent symptoms in general, things like chronic back pain, um, chronic pain in general. So if you're a therapist, I would love to know how you, in your practice, help or prevent yourself from creating the most negative iatrogenic side effects as possible. And if you're a, a person that's gone through the medical system, have there been circumstances where the things that have happened to you in care or medications that you've been on have created unwarranted side effects that have affected your trajectory in a negative way? I'd love to know in the comments below. As always, folks, I hope that you found this episode to be of value to you. Have yourselves a great weekend. And we will see you in the next one.